Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It is easy to disapprove of those who seem to us to be controlled by the various stages of public opinion. There's much going on out there, many varying viewpoints. And so we often feel that we're enlightened and they're not so enlightened. And so we pity those who seem to be influenced by certain media outlets or various forms of propaganda. We do so because we often don't see how we are influenced by opposing viewpoints, media outlets, and even propaganda. We figure that we are the enlightened ones, others are not. When we find media outlets that say what we want to believe, we consider them to be the unbiased ones. But when they say the opposite of what we figure is right, we label them as biased and conclude that their audiences are tricked into their propaganda. Even though our society says all viewpoints are valid and that we must respect every person's personal opinions, at the same time, society is telling us that we must only follow certain narratives out there. This, of course, is creating much polarization and even hatred, and Christians are often the victims because in our society, Christian values are under attack. Christians are being condemned for their biblical beliefs, especially as we know that the best way to raise children is with their father and mother under the same roof, that it is not good for children to have two dads or two moms, that no-fault divorce is wrong, and that it is also wrong to kill unborn babies or euthanize people. Many condemn us because they figure that our views are backwards and that they are more enlightened than we are. We, though, believe that God does not change and that God reveals his truth through the unchanging Bible. And so we cling to what he teaches. And history has shown that what he teaches is better than the modern trends in society. Now, in Jesus' day, those who thought that they were enlightened were the Pharisees. They figured that they understood all aspects of theology and life correctly, while those whom they were busy putting down, they figured, did not. They were so sure of their own opinions on biblical matters that they even openly criticized Jesus for not conforming to their ways of thought. In today's gospel, Jesus receives sinners. He eats with them. They drew near to Jesus to hear him, and he readily spoke and confessed the truth to them. This action, receiving and eating with sinners, was particularly egregious to the enlightened Pharisees who figured they knew so much better because unlike in our day, if you go under the same roof 
and eat with other people. In those days, it meant solidarity and unity with that person in life and with religious beliefs. How then, the Pharisees are reasoning, could Jesus unite himself to such gross sinners and thieves like the tax collectors? In response, Jesus politely rebukes the Pharisees by the two parables which we have heard today, showing the importance of calling sinners to repentance and even the fruitlessness of refusing to repent. So what do we make of this account today? Are we in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, just like those Pharisees in Jesus' day? We do, after all, at least from the surface, find some striking comparisons. Both the Pharisees and the Missouri Synod figure that they are right, while others are incorrect or wrong. Both are concerned that God's people follow pure doctrine and right practice. Both are known to condemn sin. Both seem rather exclusive because the Pharisees won't eat with sinners or tax collectors, and in the Missouri Synod, we won't commune those outside of the LCMS. Both the Pharisees and we in the Missouri Synod have high standards for morality, and of course, we both want to be right. Does this make us the Pharisees, though, of our day? Some would have you believe it. More liberal Lutheran church bodies are particularly offended by us in the LCMS and frequently draw the conclusion of how pharisaical we are. Many hate us for sticking with the Bible's teachings on many matters. In fact, their hatred of us is like the hatred of the Pharisees that they had against Jesus and his disciples. So, though, are we Pharisees? Is it pharisaical to practice closed communion? or recognize that God made us male or female, male and female, he created us. To uphold marriage as a lifelong union between one man and one woman. To reject the lodges as unionistic societies. Or to accept only men as pastors. While many may try to portray us as Pharisees to holding to these positions, the reality is these are the positions, the teachings of the Bible, and therefore they are the teachings of God. And it is never pharisaical when we hold to the teachings of God. Practicing closed communion may seem pharisaical because we are not communing those who hold to other confessions within Christianity, and we're also not communing those who are openly unrepentant. It may seem like this is the same as the Pharisees, who were unwilling to eat with those sinners and tax collectors that Jesus was eating with. And in last week's gospel, we heard that parable of the great banquet in which all were invited. So who is right here? What practice is upholding God's word? Should we commune everyone? That from a worldly standpoint would appear to be the nicest or commune only those who have been examined, absolved, and confessed with the lips the doctrine of our church. 
that for many appears to be too narrow, but yet it is the right way. It is the biblical way. To come to an understanding of how this is correct, we need to look at the conclusions in today's parables. A sheep and a coin are lost. The shepherd seeks after that lost sheep. The woman searches her house until she finally founds, finds that lost coin. Both of them, of course, are found. And in both, there is much rejoicing. The shepherd rejoices. The woman rejoices. People rejoice with the shepherd and with the woman. But then notice our Lord's conclusion. In the first one, the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus says, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Pharisees were those 99, if you will. They figured repentance was unnecessary, and Jesus is showing how much joy there is because these sinners and tax collectors who drew near to Jesus to hear him were repenting. And then in the conclusion to the parable of the lost coin, Jesus said, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. When Jesus receives these sinners and tax collectors and eats with them, he is not confirming them in their sin. It's tempting to say, well, you know, Jesus did this, so let's just do the same thing. But Jesus was not saying, well, you were born with the propensity to steal or to cheat or to fornicate or cohabitate or murder or believe in false doctrines, so let's celebrate you. Jesus did not say, well, if you're doing these things, let's have a pride month for your sin and allow you to keep on doing it. Instead, what Jesus does is he calls them to repentance, and as they turn from their sin in repentance and faith, there is joy in heaven. To admit, to admit sin and turn from it is a way to understand what repentance is. Without the law of God, there would be no repentance. Because with the law of God, we then know where we have gone off track, where we have failed to keep up to God's perfect standards, where we have gone amiss. God the Holy Spirit is the one who leads us to repentance. And as we are accused of our sin, he can certainly even cause us to have the feeling of guilt. But when we transgress God's laws, whether we have a feeling of guilt or not, we are guilty. And instead of despairing over our sin because we have transgressed God's perfect law, often time and time again, we confess our sin to God. We make no excuses for our sin. We do not attempt to explain our sin away. It's easy to try to come up with some sort of logical explanation for what we've, why we've done what we've done. 
I needed to get from point A to point B quickly, so that's why I was driving so fast. I should be let off the hook. Instead of making excuses, we plead guilty. We confess our sin. We admit that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed. That we have sinned in the things that we have done and the things that we have left undone. And God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. It is these repentant sinners whom Jesus is receiving and fellowshipping with. He is not receiving them by saying, well, I will be crucified soon to take away your sins, so keep on sinning so that you can keep on piling up the sins for which I must make atonement. Jesus, by taking away the sin of the world, does not mean that the moral law can go on ignored by God's people. Because his law remains the same, going all the way back to creation, the same at the days of Moses and, and in Jesus' day and even our day. God's word, which is our great heritage, also remains unchanging, and therefore we can be confident and certain on what truth is, even though Pilate did not know. So we listen, we open our ears, we hear the law even as it accuses us. We amend our lives through his word. And we especially open our ears to the gospel. That Jesus invites us to this great banquet and that he takes our sin away through his sacrifice on the cross. And so when Jesus dines with sinners and tax collectors, he, through his word, is calling them to repentance and their lives are amended. Their temptations to continue in those various sins may well remain. But their heart's desire, the desire of their spirit, is then to walk in the ways of the Lord. This, my dear brothers and sisters in Christ, is what the Pharisees were unwilling to see. The Pharisees knew the past lives of these so-called sinners and tax collectors, but they did not care what happened to them. They did not care that they had repented. They did not care that God would be willing to forgive them. The Pharisees were too self-absorbed for that. They were too ready to judge and condemn than to receive forgiveness or call to repentance. When we practice closed communion, we are still communing sinners. There's no perfect person who has kneeled at this rail to commune. All of us have sinned, you and me. Your mind has probably wandered during the sermon. Maybe you'd be shocked to know that even me, while I'm preaching, words coming out of my mouth may still sometimes have a wandering mind. We don't hesitate, though, to kneel next to our brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we know 
how they have wronged us in the past. We don't dig up their past. We aren't ready to fling mud at them. But when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ come forward to the Lord's altar, recognizing that they have repented of their sin, we rejoice with them that they receive Christ's body and blood for their forgiveness. We rejoice that you this day are drawn into the Lord's house and that he invites you to his banquet. We were once lost, but our good shepherd has found us. He has added us to his family through baptism. And when we have strayed into sinful lifestyles or false belief, he has sought after us, doing so through fellow caring Christians, whether they're our Christian neighbors, relatives, or pastor, they work to bring us back into his fold. If Jesus had not called these sinners and tax collectors to repentance, but simply said, well, that's who you are, we'll rejoice in it, we'll let you be, no law for you, the Pharisees certainly would have had a valid case. But as the parables teach, Jesus did not do that. He rejoiced that they repented and believed in Christ for their salvation. And in the same way, for those who hold to other confessions of the faith or remain unrepentant, we cannot commune them until they join with their lips our confession of the faith or when they plead guilty of their sin, and if amendment is possible, they do so. We do this in love, seeking after them and showing them the right way. That is what our Lord Jesus is describing the work of his church to be through these parables of seeking out the lost sheep and the lost coin. And when they repent, and join in confessing with their lips the same biblical truths as we confess, we then gladly invite them to the Lord's table to eat with us side by side the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we are filled with nothing but joy, as are the angels in heaven. But should we ignore our doctrinal differences or the impenitence of, of certain wayward individuals, and instead invite them to the Lord's table anyway, we would be lying to them. We would be misleading them into thinking that their sinful ways are okay. They would then die condemned, and we would be instruments of their eternal death. In love for ourselves and for them, we cannot allow for that. After all, Jesus in love went to the cross to pay for every last sin, there is no sin, and there is no sinner whom Jesus left out when he shed his all-atoning sacrifice to make amends on our behalf with our Heavenly Father. Having received his love and forgiveness, we then turn to our neighbor in love and with a forgiving heart. Wanting our fellow man to know the truth of God's word and to lead repentant lives is certainly part and parcel to our heritage and identity as Lutherans. In Martin Luther's first of 95 theses, Luther wrote, 
When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he willed that the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. And on this day, 493 years ago, on June 25, 1530, the Lutheran confessors at Augsburg gave our confession of the Christian faith. They gave it before the emperor, who would have preferred for them to not continue to live. This confession was not a compromise to agree to disagree. But the confession, the Augsburg Confession, states the way of salvation, which is found only through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. After all, we want people to know the truth, for Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. In Christ, we are freed from sin, and we are received into his kingdom and we feast in his banquet. Amen. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus to life everlasting.